Sometimes in history, people doing good and cool stuff get overshadowed by some not cool or great stuff. Take our second podcast episode subject, Elijah Fish, for example, who for years was a footnote in the story of the utter murders. This happened with this episode subject, too. Harris Marcus was a war hero who revolutionized both dining in Birmingham and nationally, and would have probably liked to be known for that. But then a certain teamster just had to disappear from the parking lot of one of his restaurants. So, while the FBI investigates yet another lead that will probably come up empty, let's show Birmingham's own Harris Marcus a little bit of love. This is Birmingham Uncovered, a podcast by the Birmingham Museum, where we are exploring the diverse and compelling lives that built Birmingham, Michigan into the community that it is today. First, some background on Birmingham. We are a city of approximately 20,000 people over 4.73 square miles, approximately halfway between Detroit and Pontiac and Oakland County. This area was occupied by members of the Three Fires Confederacy of Indigenous Peoples before white settlement in the area started in the late 18-teens. Birmingham became a city in 1933, and today is known as a prosperous and multifaceted community with a thriving cultural scene. This is our fourth and final episode in our series with the Birmingham Shopping District, highlighting stories from the evolution of Birmingham's retail scene. Today, we are focusing on how restaurants and dining evolved in Birmingham in the 20th century. In 2024, Birmingham boasts a thriving downtown restaurant scene, but this wasn't always the case. Like several other folks that we've highlighted in this series so far, Harris Marcus was a child of immigrants. His father Hans immigrated from Bremen, Germany in 1898. On the ship's manifest, he gave his destination as Wisconsin, but being a cheesehead was not for him. By 1906, Hans was working as a pastry chef at Henry's in Chicago, Illinois. Sometime before the 1910 census, Hans and his wife Catherine had moved to Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, where Hans Otto Marcus was born on July 10, 1908. The Marcus family then moved to East Lansing, and Hans opened up his own bakery in 1911, calling it the Marcus Bakery and Pastry Shop. Harris grew up in East Lansing and attended Michigan State University. At Michigan State, he met his future wife, Elaine Skinnum. Elaine was studying education, and Harris was majoring in economics because he wanted to become a banker. Harris also joined the ROTC because he was a horse girl and wanted to ride a horse. And let's get one thing clear. Horse girlery is a state of being that knows no race, ethnicity, biological sex, gender expression, age, religion, national boundaries, or sexuality. To paraphrase the philosopher Kel Mitchell, in the art house film Good Burger, I'm a horse girl, he's a horse girl, she's a horse girl, we're all horse girls. In 1932, Harris and Elaine graduated with bachelor's degrees, but a little thing called the Great Depression meant that bankers weren't exactly in demand. Check out our previous episode on Jacobson's for how the Great Depression impacted the national and international economies. Harris got a job with a grocery supply company called Standard Brands 
1934, Harris and Elaine married. While Harris was working at Standard Brands, Harris's parents, Catherine and Hans, moved to Birmingham and opened up a bakery at 105 West Maple in 1933. We don't know exactly why they moved to Birmingham, but a clue can be found in the 1930 Birmingham Directory, which lists only one other bakery in the village. It looks like there was a market, and not a whole lot of competition in Birmingham. Unlike the larger East Lansing that had more bakeries competing for fewer dollars during the Great Depression. But while one might assume that the Great Depression would put bakeries out of business due to folks cutting back on non-essential expenditures, the data suggests that there was a place for them, even when money was tight. The Depression forced many cooks to get creative in the kitchen, and innovations like frozen foods, convenience foods, and refrigerators helped usher in a whole new way of thinking about meals and food preparation. At the same time, consolidation of national broadcasting chains and radio and the emergence of movies featuring technicolor and sound created a true mass culture. For the average American during the 1930s, movies were relatively inexpensive and offered a respite from the real-world anxieties and insecurities for at least a few hours. Opulent musicals, screwball comedies, and characters indulging themselves with sweets, or perhaps just singing about them, like Shirley Temple does with Good Ship Lollipop from the 1934 movie Bright Eyes, were a comfort to Americans looking forward to better times. And in the face of economic instability, a sweet, whether it be a scoop of ice cream or a small cake, can be an affordable indulgence that can give you the strength to keep on looking forward. Biochemical processes in the brain translate the experience of eating sugar to increased levels of dopamine, that dulls discomfort and induces euphoria. For all of us non-sciencey folks out there, sweets taste like happy. Back to Harris Marcus, though. In 1942, after years of working with standard brands, Harris and Elaine moved to Birmingham to help with the Marcus bakery and pastry shop. But the wide world of baking, at least for Harris, would have to wait because of World War II. The United States entered World War II on December 7, 1941, after Japan attacked the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. Japan had been expanding its Pacific Empire throughout the 1930s and officially entered the war in September of 1940 with the invasion of French Indochina, a French colony which included the modern-day nations of Laos, Cambodia, parts of China, and Vietnam and allied themselves with Germany and Italy, who had already started the war in Europe. The war had officially started in September 1939, when Germany invaded Poland. Earlier that year, the UK and France had guaranteed that they would protect Poland from a Germany that was looking to expand its borders. At the same time, Germany's ally, Italy, controlled by fascist leader Benito Mussolini, was also on the warpath, invading Ethiopia. The causes of World War II could be its own podcast episode, so I'll try to keep it brief. After all, we aren't one of those World War II documentaries that your grandpa is always watching. World War I, several years earlier, had taken a toll on the participating countries. Many European countries had lost almost an entire generation of its young men. Infrastructures were decimated, 
Nikanui's Habold. Additionally, three long-standing empires, the Russian, Austro-Hungarian, and Ottoman empires, were gone. The Axis powers, and at this point it was mostly just Germany, responsible for heavy reparations, which took a huge toll on its economy. And then, the late 1920s and 30s saw a global depression that came at the worst possible time. The chaos and instability of the age propelled two opposing governmental systems to greater prominence than ever before. The first, communism, is a left-wing philosophical and political ideology whose goal is a socio-economic order centered around common ownership and the means of production, distribution, and exchange. Simplified, this means that everyone owns a bit of everything. To achieve this in an ideal world, this entails the absence of private property and social classes, where products are allocated across society based on need. Communism is within the wider socialist movement, which was having a big moment in the 1920s, as workers increasingly unionized and the gap between the rich and the poor widened. Many nations had communist parties within their government, but the Soviet Union was the most powerful communist state at the outset of World War II. The second political ideology was fascism, a far-right, authoritarian, ultranationalist political ideology that is characterized by a dictatorial leader, a central autocracy, militarism, forcible suppression of opposition, belief in a natural social hierarchy, subordination of individual interests for the perceived good of the nation or race, and strong regimentation of the society and economy. This was exemplified during this period by Italy's Benito Mussolini and Germany's Adolf Hitler. But World War II wasn't the first time that democracy, communism, and fascism would bloodily duke it out. The Spanish Civil War was fought between 1936 and 1939 and pitted socialist, communist, separatist, anarchistic, and republican. In this context, this refers to those who wish to establish a republic form of government, not to be confused with any nation's republican political party. Against a nationalist, traditionalist, and monarchist groups, of which future Spanish dictator Francisco Franco came to lead. Although no other nations were officially involved, different nations funneled money and supplies to various sides of the conflict, and people from many nations joined the fight. Around 3,000 Americans fought on the Republican side, and again, not to be confused with any political party, including every high school senior's favorite American writer, Ernest Hemingway. The Spanish Civil War has been called World War II's dress rehearsal. Back to Harris Marcus. He was drafted in 1942, and due to his experience in the ROTC, was made a lieutenant in the cavalry. So, did our boy finally get to ride a horse? Although the origin of the English word cavalry comes from the French cheval, for horse, by the time World War II came around, horses were being quickly replaced by tanks and jeeps. In World War I, horses proved to be just as susceptible to new weapons like nerve gas and machine guns as the humans who rode them. Horses also had to be trained to be desensitized to the sounds and the smells of battle. 
Tanks and jeeps can carry more weight, can be heavily armored, and aren't going to break down because they were exposed to mustard gas or they needed to sleep. Tanks and guns mounted on jeeps are much more efficient killing machines as well. That doesn't mean that the horse girls of the cavalry were happy about it, though. Most of the career soldiers of the cavalry were accomplished horsemen, and I cannot overemphasize how everyone on both sides of World War II were horse girls. If you need an example of this, look no further than how much out of their way the 2nd Cavalry Group went to rescue a group of horses in 1945. Go look it up. It is peak horse girl behavior. But interestingly enough, the U.S. Cavalry's last horse unit wasn't retired until 1942, and the last cavalry charge was against Japanese forces in the Philippines. In 1950, the army was reorganized, and the cavalry was absorbed into the armor branch, although the name cavalry is still in use, and there is a ceremonial mounted division. So much to Max's disappointment when he was drafted, no horses. Harris was sent to North Africa. His three years of service were, if I really had to undersell it, very eventful. If you thought that John Allen Bigelow's antics during wartime were crazy, and for that see our episode entitled How to Steal a Train, strap in, because Marcus's experience was wild. To quote from the April 25th, 1945 issue of the Birmingham Eccentric, quote, Fighting the wars would not be so bad, he says, but getting it in the neck with a piece of enemy shell, being captured while still unconscious from wounds, wandering for months in the wild, wooded, and mountain country of Italy, and through the deep snows and 30 below weather in Poland, just do not make one anxious to repeat the performance. Captain Marcus went through all this and much more during his three years of army service. For two years, he was a prisoner of war of the Italians and then the Germans, first in Africa, then in Italy, and finally in the bitter cold of a Polish winter. End quote. Remember, at this time, North Africa was a major theater of the war as A, many European nations had North African colonies, and B, it was a route to the Middle East and to oil. Harris Marcus's battlefield experience only lasted a few months. He was injured in Tunisia by the sixth shell that went through his tank. He woke up in a field hospital behind German lines. He was then taken via hospital ship to Italy, where he found himself a pr in a prisoner of war camp for British and American officers called PG-21, an old convent that could hold up to 1,300 prisoners. In September 1943, Italy had had enough of the war and signed an armistice with the UK and US government, and the prisoners in the camp were allowed to go. But a senior British officer, following orders that commanded the prisoners to stay until the arrival of Allied forces, prevented anyone from leaving. Unfortunately, this meant that the Germans, still in the war, were able to get there first and recapture everybody. From there, Marcus and his fellow officers were put on a train headed towards Germany. Harris Marcus and a companion escaped and roughed it for six months in the Alps, an area he and his companion were unfamiliar with, having been prepped and trained for the North African campaign. 
At one point, they were only about 10 miles from Allied lines. But unfortunately, again, he was recaptured by the Germans, and Marcus's companion was killed. He was then taken to Morsburg, near Munich, before being sent to a camp known as Olflag 64 in Poland, a prison for American ground officers. And don't worry if your geography knowledge needs a little help with tracking all of this. We have a map on our website with Marcus's route through North Africa and Europe. Check out the link in the show notes. But the Russians, allied with the U.S. and the U.K., were closing in on Poland from the east. And the Germans rounded up the 2,000 men in the camp and moved them west towards Germany in the dead of winter. Marcus recounted that it was 30 below zero the first night and 20 below the second. The second night was when he escaped along with several other officers who decided to head east to try to find the Russian front. They were fed and sheltered by several Polish families along the way. Once they reached the Russian front, they were taken to Warsaw and then on to Odessa, and then by ship, first to Italy and then the United States. Two out of Marcus's three years in the army were spent as either a prisoner of war or escaping from POW camps. The whole time, Marcus didn't have word from his family nor did they know anything about where he was or if he was even still alive. In 1944, a Birmingham directory even listed his wife Elaine as a widow. So it must have been extremely exciting for his family to learn that he was indeed alive and coming home to them. Fast forward, and I hope this isn't going to be a spoiler for anyone, but the Allies won World War II. And that's where we'll leave global politics, because I simply do not have the energy to describe the posturing that was the Cold War. I know I'll have to do it someday, but not today. Harris Marcus returned to Birmingham and took over the family bakery. In 1947, he moved the bakery to a location at 160 West Maple. In 1950, he sensed a business opportunity when Jacobson's department store opened down the street and a new kind of customer was passing by the bakery doors. These new shoppers wanted light fare on their way to and from shopping, and Marcus began serving coffee, soda, and sandwiches. It was a rousing success that led to the expansion of the bakery into a full restaurant in 1957, named Marcus West Maple, later renamed 160 by Marcus. There was so much more expansion in the future for Harris Omakis Enterprises. In 1965, the second restaurant, Marcus Adams Square, opened with Marcus Red Fox following close behind. In 1969, a second Red Fox opened in Lansing. In 1973, Marcus Sly Fox opened in Birmingham. Marcus Plaza One opened in Rochester and Mr. Mack's stable and the paddock in Fairlane in Dearborn opened. And, in a bit of a full-circle moment, he opened up the Hungry Fox in Jacobson's department store in Saginaw. 1971 saw the first Foxy's restaurant opening in Troy, and 1981 another opened in Rochester. The man really, really liked foxes, I guess. In the 1960s, fast food restaurants were expanding their hold across the nation, as more Americans flocked to the suburbs and drive throughs made it even easier for busy suburbanites to grab a bite. Less common were casual or fine dining empires, 
which made it a niche market right for Harris Marcus to move into. Well, Mr. Marcus taught me that in the restaurant business, you're only as good as your last meal. The guest is the reason we're in business, end quote. One of Marcus's mentees was recorded as saying, In 1987, Harris retired and turned his business over to his son, Robert, who would further expand the empire, expanding into Ann Arbor with the A-squared restaurant and feeding hungry Detroit Pistons fans with the Palace Grill at the Palace of Auburn Hills. Great food and guest service wasn't Marcus's only goal. He brought a degree of professionalism into the industry as the president and director of the National Restaurants Association from 1984 to 1985, urging consistent service, cleanliness, and food quality. Diners all over the country benefited from Harris Marcus. Marcus was also president of the Birmingham Chamber of Commerce and received the first Citizen of Birmingham Award. And now, it's time to talk about Jimmy Hoffa. And don't worry, this isn't going to take three and a half hours. Among my many claims to fame is the fact that I am not Martin Scorsese. July 30th, 1975. Jimmy Hoffa, a labor union leader with ties to organized crime, was last seen in the parking lot of the Marcus Red Fox restaurant on Woodward Avenue in Bloomfield Township. The restaurant was well known to Hoffa, as well as most residents of the area. Hoffa was president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters from 1957 to 1971. Teamsters represent a lot of trades, but truck drivers are one of their main demographics. Throughout Hoffa's career as a labor organizer and president of the Teamsters, he was involved in organized crime. He was convicted of jury tampering, attempted bribery, and wire and mail fraud. The man loved both collective organizing and crime. We all need a side hustle. After getting out of prison for the above-stated charges, he wanted to resume leadership of the Teamsters, but other Teamster organizers with closer connections to the Mafia didn't agree with him on this. On July 30, 1975, Hoffa was to meet with two such Mafia and Teamster-connected individuals at the Red Fox. The funny thing is, Hoffa didn't even make it into the restaurant. He disappeared from the parking lot. Hoffa was never seen again, and is presumed dead. Every spring, the FBI digs up another lot somewhere in Metro Detroit looking for him after receiving a, quote, reliable tip. Generations of Metro Detroiters, myself included, grew up yelling, That's Jimmy Hoffa! loudly from the back seat every time their parents went over a particularly large speed bump. Marcus hated the notoriety that Hoffa's disappearance brought worrying that people would think he ran restaurants for gangsters and that it would tank his reputation. Instead, it did quite the opposite, making him and his restaurant into household names all over the country and driving further business. Marcus died in 2001, at the age of 92. At its height, the Marcus Empire included 16 restaurants and several bakeries. Today, all the restaurants are gone, but Marcus Enterprises still exist, specializing in business services. Dining wasn't a big deal in Birmingham before Marcus expanded the family bakery. There were a few places to eat, 
but there wasn't a huge demand until Birmingham's growing retail scene brought in more and more shoppers who worked up appetites after a little retail therapy. We chose to round out our look at the development of Birmingham's dynamic downtown retail scene with Harris Marcus, because today Birmingham is known for its eateries as much as for its shopping, and the two go hand in hand in the city. Today, dining constitutes 12% of businesses in the city, with 56% of those restaurants being full-service, sit-down establishments, and 45% of those have a luxury price point, in line with the luxury price points for many retail establishments in the city. But if you have a museum worker's salary, don't despair. Among the many plans the Birmingham Shopping District has is to attract more casual, lower price point eateries to the city. To learn more about Birmingham Shopping District and to see their upcoming events, including when the next restaurant week is, check out their website, allinbirmingham.com. The link will be in our show notes. We hope that you've enjoyed this special four-episode look at the growth and development of Birmingham's retail scene. We are back to our regular shenanigans next episode with a look at Birmingham's number one hater. Minnie Hunt Saltzer considered herself to be the foremost expert on early Birmingham, but she let her own prejudice and salacious gossip run rampant, which led a lot of folks in town calling for the Birmingham eccentric newspaper to deplatform her decades before a cancel culture became a talking point. I'm Caitlin Donnelly, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Birmingham Uncovered. To see photos and other documents related to Harris Marcus' life and restaurant empire, check out our website. The link is in the show notes. For questions, comments, and episode suggestions, feel free to reach us at museum at behamgov.org. Special thanks to the Birmingham Area Cable Board for Peg Grant funding that made this podcast possible. Also, thanks to past and present staff of the Birmingham Museum and our amazing volunteers. 